0: Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I'm joined as always by my colleague Kelly Vlahos. This week we will be talking about the military budget with Julia Gledhill of the Project on Government Oversight. But first let's turn to two stories that have been in the news recently. The first is a military coup in Niger, a country in West Africa where the U.S. has a military presence and one of its largest drone bases. The coup took place on July 26, ousting the democratically elected Mohamed Bazoum. The commander of the Presidential Guard, General Omar Abdulrahman Chiani, claimed that he was acting against the civilian government because it was failing to combat Islamic extremism. But there's reason to believe that he seized power because he was about to be removed from his post. And the, uh, the justification came after that. Uh, Niger is one of several West African states to experience military coups in recent years, including Guinea, Mali, and Burkina Faso. As Alex Thurston wrote in Responsible Statecraft last week, Niger was supposed to be an oasis of stability in the region. But, as he says, uh, Nigerian exceptionalism has now run aground. The coup has been met with condemnation from Western governments and from the regional organization ECOWAS, the economic community of West African states. ECOWAS has even threatened military intervention to restore the elected government, and the junta has warned outside governments not to get involved. The juntas in neighboring Mali and Burkina Faso have denounced the threat of intervention and said they would consider an ECOWAS campaign in Nigeria as tantamount to a declaration of war against them as well, and they rejected implementation of ECOWAS sanctions. Uh, for its part, the U.S. has said that military aid to Nigeria is in jeopardy if the coup is not reversed. But there have been other coups in partner states, and the U.S. has usually found a way to keep assistance flowing one way or another. ECOWAS sanctions on Niger will likely have a severe impact on the population, but it is doubtful that they will force the junta to give up, especially if they can count on neighboring junta regimes to help with sanctions busting. So what do you make of all this, Kelly? Uh, There have been a spate of coups across the region, and the militaries that carry them out were close partners and received training from our military. It doesn't really uh, reflect very well on us. And, of course, the whole thing is a bit of an embarrassment for both the U.S. and France uh, that have been working so closely with the deposed government. Uh, And has U.S. support for policies of militarized counterterrorism in West Africa contributed to the creation of the so-called coup belt?
1: (laughs) I hadn't heard the the phrase – coup belt before, but I mean, it makes a lot of sense uh, for what's happening there. I mean, we've been covering uh, on this show and responsible statecraft, all these coups for over a year now, and it's, I'm starting to confuse one for the other. Um, I mean, we've had smart, you know, smarter people than I, like Stephanie Savelle on the show, who has actually visited the region, and she is very critical of U.S. assistance to these countries in Africa because the assistance has disproportionately been military assistance. And they're pretty much fueling governments in which the military is heavily involved in the civil society. And as she has said, that those governments are more apt to fall prey to coups. When you have the military so closely intertwined with civil affairs, and I, you know, she, I've, I've talked to her a bit. She's writing a piece for Responsible Statecraft as we speak, you know, and she and she had noted there are dynamics going on in Niger that have nothing to do with U.S. assistance or meddling or you know France's uh, it, you know activities there. You know, there are ethnic tensions, for example, political attention, uh, tensions, you know, the leader there was weak. But that all said, you know, our counterterrorism activities there have managed uh, to disproportionately um, reward uh, military leaders, train them, assist them uh, without a lot of real tangible um success on the civil side and many of these countries that we're talking about here have deep rooted economic problems development problems um, issues with the like we mentioned the ethnic tensions um, they are broken civil societies that need assistance and we're really good at throwing money at these things but pretty terrible at follow through. And what we seem to be good at is training military leaders who end up overthrowing their government. So, you know, I haven't seen a lot of response from the U.S. State Department on this other than a partial evacuation of Niger. Um, But I don't see a lot of promise in the idea that maybe they need to change things, that doing the same thing over and over again isn't working in these countries.
0: Right. Well, and, and we see with, with the other junta governments, uh, in, in Mali and Burkina Faso that they're not any more effective in combating security problems. Uh, the, the, the excuse that, uh, Chiani is using, uh, for the takeover is that Bazoum was, was not doing a good enough job in, in combating these threats. Right. But, but we, we know, uh, that these, uh, that these policies of militarized counterterrorism, whether conducted by us or conducted by partner states, uh, have tended to uh, exacerbate those security problems rather than resolve them. Uh, and and so now you look at Burkina Faso uh, next door that has almost half of its territory under the control of extremist groups. Uh, that you know if if backing military governments made sense, or if that was an effective way to combat this problem, you shouldn't be seeing that. But but in fact, that's what we're seeing. And so I I fear that uh, the situation will deteriorate in Niger uh, as well. And then, of course, you have this threat of foreign intervention uh, with with the possibility of ECOWAS moving in, uh, which, of course, they have done uh, in some past cases. I believe there was an ECOWAS intervention in Liberia some some decades back, if I remember right, uh, uh, where there was a concerted effort by regional governments to sort of quash... This tendency towards military coups once upon a time, uh, but now there, there are so many different governments uh, that are have fallen to these coups that ECOWAS itself as, as we see is is split uh, with some members being run by hun- juntas themselves, uh, yeah. openly sympathetic uh, to other juntas so it's it's become quite uh, quite a mess uh, and i I wanted to point out there's a there's a really good article in World Politics review. Uh, just came out this week. Uh, Chris Ogun-Modede uh, was a very good analyst of, of African affairs, uh, writes regularly for them on that, uh, was talking about how Niger was not really uh, the, the success story that it had been made out to be prior to the coup. Uh, one of the reasons why the coup was so shocking in France and the U.S. is that our government and the French government had built up Niger so much as this uh, model or as as the the perfect partner uh, and the way that they talked about it made it seem like it was this uh, this bastion of stability in in a chaotic region, uh, when really it suffers from all the same problems that that its neighbors suffer from, and it's not it wasn't the 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 bastion that they they said it was, and I, I feel like every time either our government or some Western government labels a country as an island or a bastion of stability, it's usually one or two years away from disaster. Uh,
1: Right. And you see how thoroughly hated uh, France is, the French are right now in Niger, And so that's actually, they're trying to use France to sort of um, soak up all of the anger and animosity on the streets right now by directing it all to to France. I mean, they're deep-seated colonial era um, issues there that have yet to be overcome. And Stephanie has talked quite a bit about this as well, that um, there are legacy problems there that, that go directly to the colonialization of these, of these countries that U.S. Assist, uh, military assistance, French military assistance does not speak to it just papers over right. band-aids over the problems there.
0: Right, well and, and we we've seen in recent decades how the how French interventionist policies in West Africa have in, in some ways uh added to that that colonial legacy uh with new with with creating new resentments about French interference in the mm-hmm. affairs of these countries. Uh, and so yes, you you see a lot of there are a lot of protests uh in the capital of Niger Niamey. Uh, where they're waving Russian flags, I mean, you know, sort of as a, just, just to be sort of provocative and, and to throw it back in the face of the, the French, uh, that, that they, they have other potential patrons, uh, they, they have other, uh, outside powers that, that they can look to, uh, they, they don't have to depend on France or the US. Uh, of course, th- this is getting, uh, framed in a lot of Western coverage as, uh, you know, oh, Russia is winning. And the U.S. and France are losing, but I, that's that's kind of reductive. That's not really the the most important part of the story. Uh, I'm sure that the Russians are are getting some satisfaction out of seeing a U.S. backed leader overthrown, but that's that's not really uh, the the most relevant point. Uh, one one of the things that that needs to be emphasized is that the the president who has been ousted had some long running tensions with the military uh, and, and he was himself minister of the interior under the previous leader. Uh, and during his tenure as minister of the interior, he presided over a fairly uh, nasty period uh, where Nigerian security forces were allowed to, to run uh, run amok and then do whatever they wanted. So while yes, he was the democratically elected leader, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't, we shouldn't, turn him into some sort of uh, sainted figure. No. Uh, and I mean, certainly it would be, it would be best for Niger if uh, the junta would hand power back to its civilian government, but it seems very unlikely to happen uh, under the circumstances. And we don't know that external actors are going to have much success in enforcing the issue. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm afraid that intervention is going to end up making things worse down the line if, if that is the route that they end up taking um this shifting quickly to the other story that we wanted to talk about uh was a a report this week in the new york times that the u.s plans to move forward with a u.n security council resolution authorizing a multinational force to intervene in haiti Uh, this idea keeps coming up in response to ongoing insecurity in haiti but it's gone nowhere because washington can't find anyone that wants the job of leading the operation Uh, the u.s rightly doesn't want to be involved but nobody else wants the job either Uh, Canada was the preferred candidate for leading the force, but they turned down Biden when he came asking for it. Uh, uh, Trudeau said that he didn't want to get involved until there was a political consensus in Haiti. Of course, there is still no consensus in favor of outside intervention. Uh, But the push for intervention is back on, and this time Kenya is volunteering to send a thousand of their police officers to lead the way. Um, All the problems of outside intervention remain, and Kenya seems like an odd choice since their soldiers aren't going to be able to speak the language and won't be able to communicate uh, with the people there. Uh, any multinational force sent to Haiti is probably going to be inadequate to the task given the inherent difficulties of policing another country in the face of armed resistance. So I'm not sure uh, what this is actually supposed to achieve. Uh, but but what do you think, Kelly? Uh, and how concerned are you that the U S may end up getting pulled in to intervene when so few other governments are going to step up?
1: Yeah, I, I, I find it very problematic and, heartbreaking frankly because when you look at what's going on on the ground on there there and the the gang violence the poverty um they're just it's just chaos it's chaos to a level I think that goes beyond some of these places that we've been talking about in Africa even and we're searching for ways to stanch the bleeding and a peacekeeping force or a rapid response force seems on the face of it, a good idea. Like if, if if they if the UN can't get it together to help another country in need, what is it good for? I get that. But I also see that these peacekeeping forces in the past have actually been counterproductive in Haiti. Um, they've brought cholera, they've brought sexual violence, they have not been able to Um, address the root causes of what ails Haiti. So, you know, given that record, it's hard to see that a new force. And what I understand, Dan, is that they don't want to call it a UN peacekeeping force. They're calling it something else, but yet the UN seems to be putting it together or wants to put it together with Kenya leading. I don't know what the difference is. Maybe you can explain to me, but I agree that Kenya, though it seems willing to lead, not sure they're the best ones. I under, you know, I guess the idea is that they are African, they're black, um, that they they might be able to associate better with the people on the ground there, but they don't speak the language, which I think is it should be first and foremost a, a, a consideration, <laughs> the communication between uh, any force armed force that moves in there and the people on the ground so i i just don't know i would love to see things turn around there i just don't know how it happens you have a government that's been accused of corruption if not being directly involved in the assassination of the last president he's the one that's calling uh, for this peacekeeping force to enter some you know people on the ground don't trust him and they don't trust that he will use this armed force for his own, like, praetorian guard, for example. And then there are all the other concerns about foreign interventions and how they haven't worked in the past. Um, but, my goodness, it just seems that the Haitians just cannot get a break.
0: Yeah, it, is, it is a very uh, bad situation. And I mean, One thing that I, I keep coming back to is that a lot of the leaders of Haitian civil society have, have kept uh, – stressing the fact that that they don't acknowledge the legitimacy of the current government uh the current government is unelected it has it has no legitimacy as far as they're concerned uh and, and so it doesn't speak for them and so when it calls for intervention by outside states it's not actually speaking on behalf certainly not on behalf of all the people maybe there maybe there is a a a significant segment of the population that is in favor of this but there's also a very large block that that is strenu- strenuously opposed to it, right? Uh, and 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 we can't just override that or, or pretend that that's not there. And so uh, that that's one concern uh, in terms of the the way that it's organized or the way that it's being uh, sold. I think the the reason that they don't want it to be a UN, a specifically UN peacekeeping force, is because of the the issues that you talked about from the previous experience. Uh, when they were there from i think two thousand four to two thousand uh, and seventeen and how how badly that went over and how how uh, bad the reputation of the u n is in haiti right now, and so they they want to have a multinational force but it's but they won 't be wearing blue helmets right they'll be they 'll be from a variety of states uh, that sort of cobble together uh, a, a a force uh, of their own uh but as as we're seeing this makes be organizing it and and deploying it that much harder because there's not really a mechanism for putting it together uh it's 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 all very ad hoc and and seeing who wants to to throw in a few troops here and there and i you know in the absence of a a major player actually committing to doing this i don't i honestly i don't see it getting off the ground and and if it does get off the ground it's going to be uh sort of poorly uh, organized, poorly run operation. Our guest today is Julia Gledhill. She's an analyst at the Center for Defense Information at the Project on Government Oversight. Previously, she was a foreign policy associate at the Friends Committee on National Legislation. She's also a contributor to Responsible Statecraft. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, it's our pleasure. Uh, looking forward to talking to you about uh, all things uh, military budget related. Uh, earlier in the summer, you and Bill Hartung wrote a, about a huge loophole on military spending that was included in the budget deal that the President and Congress reached uh, earlier this year. Now, you compare this to the earlier Overseas Contingency Operation Fund that functioned as a slush fund for the Pentagon And you said, prepare yourself for slush fund, too. Uh, So how does that loophole work, and what will it mean for military spending going forward?
2: Yeah, so as you all know, the debt ceiling debacle was a um, (laughs) six-month-long debate. Uh, McCarthy really had his work cut out for him trying to reach a deal on this. Um, The Biden administration was pressing for a clean increase to the debt ceiling, while House Republicans really pushed for spending cuts along with work requirements to social programs like medicaid and food stamps and temporary assistance for needy families so there was there was a lot to lot to discuss there um the treasury department warned the government that we could run out of money by early june june 5th to be exact congress ended up cutting it really close um signing a deal uh sending a deal to biden's desk june 3rd that suspended the debt ceiling um meaning that we basically capped spending at this year's levels this fiscal year's levels um allowing, uh you know, defense to uh, rise to $886 billion, which we've seen authorized in both uh, versions of the NDAA, the annual defense policy bill at this point. Um, but as you say, there is this key leaphole, loophole in which, um, you know, emergency or supplemental funding is not subject to this spending cap, this spending freeze um and that opens the door to another overseas contingency operations like fund wherein congress can throw whatever they want into this like extra slush fund um for ukraine um and while you know the congressional budget office has said that this debt deal would reduce budget deficits our annual deficits um which together um create our annual debt um could decrease those deficits by about a trillion and a half dollars over the next decade, um, we really don't know what impact the this potential loophole could have on our ability to cut our deficits. Um, and so it's pretty performative um, and disappointing to see Congress return to this sort of slush fund. We know that OCO funding really got out of hand over the course of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, It, you know, was really created post 9-11 with the intention of, you know, providing service members what they need on the ground, or at least allegedly. And it really turned into a way to just um, increase base budget funding. Um, And we saw that money... um, just increased exponentially. Um, In 2006, about 71% of OCO funding was for on-the-ground needs, like operations and force protection, while in 2019, only 32% of OCO funding supported those types of temporary activities. So I'm very, very concerned that this will happen with this new debt deal loophole, um, which is, you know, likely for Ukraine funding.
0: Right, and we're seeing that already happening with, with the upcoming Ukraine Supplemental. Uh, there was reporting this week that the president is going to request that foreign military financing for Taiwan arms be included in the next Ukraine Supplemental uh, to try to I guess, sort of smuggle in aid for Taiwan along the way. Uh, it seems to me that's a, a deliberate effort to confuse two very different issues and make it harder to debate either one on the merits and to try to sort of co-opt people that that want to arm Taiwan but maybe aren't as excited about arming Ukraine. Uh, And another notable thing about this is it's also the first time that military aid for Taiwan comes in the form of foreign military financing. Uh, So what do you make of that move and and what what do you think will happen there?
2: No, I mean, I really agree. I think we're conflating, you know, two different security challenges and um, using kind of the same pathways to, um, you know, pursue uh, what could be. Um, really devastating conflicts. I mean, I just I it seems to me that um, and, you know, I'm not going to take a position on what we should or shouldn't be sending to Taiwan. But um, as you say, it's the first time we're using presidential drawdown authority um, to arm Taiwan. That means we're taking weapons from stockpiles uh, for the first time for this purpose. Um, and I agree that it, you know, it takes a lot of the deliberative um sort of process out, um, of, of arming this country. And, um, in a lot of ways, I mean, it does increase the risk that we are just actually manifesting a war with China by, um, you know, throwing more weapons into the mix. So, um, I completely agree. I, I, I think that, um, you know, it needs to be sort of a more open negotiation and deliberative process, um, foreign military financing, um, in and of itself is, In my view, um, a way for us to subsidize our own arms industry through foreign governments, um, which is a wild concept when you think about it, Um, you know, giving other countries the money to buy weapons from private companies, private U.S. companies. which, uh yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's getting out of hand. Um, the NDAA has, you know, significantly expanded the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative as well. Um, so we might see um, Biden, you know, leading more into that program, USAI, um, rather than Presidential Drawdown Authority to potentially arm Ukraine. Um, those are kind of the two main channels for arming Ukraine thus far. And maybe we'll see the PDA as the uh, channel Um, that's more significant for Taiwan. I I really don't know. But um, I do think that, you know, these things are happening at the same time and it's turning into one of those situations where we're saying, oh, we need to create, we need to increase our production capacity. We need to send Ukraine everything um, that they need, um, of course, to fight this this war against Russia. Um, But we can't be just increasing production capacity to increase production capacity and then giving contractors even more incentive to then lobby for war with China.
1: Thank you, Julia, for coming on the show. I'm um, Just really honored to have you here, and thank you for all your great work. I just want to clarify, I guess, for the listeners, because I, you know, I work in this town. I've been covering budgets for many years now. I sort of get it, like how these things work, but can you explain what the difference is between the NDAA, which is not finalized yet, the House passed their version, the Senate passed their version, then they went on break. And they have to reconcile both and that has money for the defense uh budget in it but then we're talking about a separate emergency spending bill and then an, a potential ukraine supplemental can you talk a little bit about how all of these interact and, and what it means for the bottom line in terms of like the money that we're going to be spending for defense in ukraine and taiwan at the end of the day
2: yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking. Um, yeah. So the annual defense policy bill, as you say, is in its home stretch here. Um, since both chambers have passed their versions, you know, they have to kind of iron out the differences. Um, and that happens in this conference process, uh, during slash after August recess when, when, uh, members of Congress are typically home and doing in district, in district things. Um, but the NDAA, you know, it doesn't fully encapsulate all that we spend on national security spending. Um, in part because it is this formal, you know, base budget request. Um, but that if you include national security spending at places like the Department of Energy on nuclear programs, for example, as you know, Kelly, um, that, that, uh, encapsulates a lot more of our defense spending. And that's how we get to closer and closer to a trillion dollars right. every single year. Um, and then supplementals are in the mix. Um, you know, the president has special authorities, um, to, uh, you know, request emergency funding, um, and Congress can, Congress, you know, has that power of the purse to allocate, um, to its discretion, uh, and it really puts this upward pressure on our top line. Um, and that isn't necessarily encapsulated in the way that we talk about the defense budget. And I think that that's a problem, um, because it, you know, um, it's confusing for a reason, right? Uh, uh it's not easily navigable in part because, um, you know, the powers that be don't necessarily want the people to see how much of their money is going to defense. I mean, defense is already about half of our discretionary spending—the money that Congress has to allocate every single year—and um, when you when you factor in all of these supplementals, you know, it it gets even larger than that. Um, so. W- for the majority of our tax dollars to be going to national security um, you know it's important that we ask these questions and get that clarity and sort of ask for accountability as for how is these funds are are dispersed and 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 how um, effective they actually are in making people safer
1: and so um, the emergency spending bill that we're talking about is this is this something that actually is on the table right now or is are we speculating that Congress is going to like pass an emergency spending bill, like right before, like September thirtieth, to boost the defense budget, and then may include uh, Ukraine aid slash Taiwan aid supplemental in that.
2: Is yes, that- this is pure speculation. Okay. Um, just given the way that the debt deal was written, with this loophole that. Um, emergency slash supplemental funds are not subject to the caps established in the debt deal. Um, uh, uh, this is conjecture that I'm, you know, based on that, I'm saying, oh, I guess we can expect to see that in the near future. Um, so yes, I, I just, you know, um, off the top of my head, I would I would expect to see that in the next couple of months here, maybe by the end of September, just yeah. as things are going in Ukraine.
1: Exactly. And I would imagine, I mean, the timing is critical. And if Congress is faced with an emergency spending bill, let's say, and and, and I've heard this, this isn't just me bringing it up, but I've heard, you know, there's, it's hurricane season. They'll need some extra funding to respond to hurricanes, disaster relief, yada, yada. And they have this massive um, spending, um, emergency spending Bill, and then they fold in or Ukraine and or Taiwan. Most members of Congress are going to be hard pressed to vote against it, right? And so I I I feel like when people look at Washington and they go, oh, "There's lots of funny business going down there." This is kind of part of the funny business. Like they know that they have a certain amount of time to pass the spending bills, for example, before September 30th, and the government runs out, quote unquote. And so they'll smush some of these more controversial items in, in order to get the maximum vote for it and, and to chill open debate. Um, and, and I, and I think that's why people are so tired of Washington because they see this happening time and again, and there isn't open debate because you're just trying to deal with too much in a very short period of time.
2: Yeah, no, totally. I mean, it's hard to follow. Um, Members don't stick to their guns, uh, for lack of a better term. I mean, you know, we saw Bernie Sanders offer an amendment to cut the budget by 10% in the Senate this year. Um, it was the first time the Senate voted on a proposal to cut the Pentagon budget since 2020. And it was a much weaker vote than we saw, you know, three years ago. Um, it failed 88 to 11. Um, we only had one Republican vote in favor of that 10% cut. And, you know, I'm not here saying I expected a 10% Pentagon budget cut to pass by any means. Um, but we saw some flips. We saw folks who voted in 2020 for that 10% cut, um, didn't stick to their guns. And in fact, um, flipped and, and voted against that. Um, you know, some of those were Booker, Gillibrand, Schatz, um, Democrats that you would expect to see, um, stand their ground on this. And I, I do think that it's, um, you know, uh, not particularly compelling for, you know, your average U.S. taxpayer to watch because, um, they know how beholden members of Congress are to the industry, um, and yeah, just to corporate influence that uh, these types of votes don't don't typically go very well. Um, but I mean, as we do kind of dig our heels in here and, and see Congress, you know, authorizing multi-year well, contracts for Ukraine um, procurement, you know, we need to be asking these questions pretty consistently and holding them accountable for those types of votes because it is a lot of money. It's just an insane amount of money. I mean, we are already spending more than the next 10 countries combined, um, most of whom are allies, as you all well know. Um, we spend, you know, about three times more than our so-called pacing threat, which is China. Um, you know, y- you know all of the, all of the stats, um, more than the peak of the Korean or Vietnam Wars, the Cold War. I mean, it's an incredible amount of money and these types of supplementals really push us over the edge.
1: So when you hear senators in particular, because they're the ones who have been most vocal about the spending caps on defense. When you hear them say, if we don't put more into defense, we are hurting our national security. We are putting our, our country at risk. How do you react to that? Because it is such a canard and it can be countered with plenty of facts and figures that you deal with every day, but it sounds pretty good when these guys are on Fox News saying this and saying, you know, we got that. We got to watch the Chinese. We got to fight uh, Putin in, in Eastern Europe. And who are these uh, members of Congress who are advocating a cut to our defense? Are they insane? I mean, how do you counter that? Because it's an emotional argument and it works with a lot of voters but a lot of voters who are maybe uninformed about how much waste and abuse goes on with the existing defense funding,
2: yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, I could probably stand to engage more with the folks making those arguments directly. Um, but I think like, you know, my initial reaction is, um is the fact that?" the Pentagon can't account for 61% of its $3.5 trillion in stuff, in assets, not a security threat, because I think it is. Um, I mean, there's just so many incredible examples of waste and abuse of funds at the Pentagon that, as you say, Kelly, it's kind of hard to um, respond with the facts because they don't appear to matter very much to those particular members of Congress who make these yeah. types of arguments because they are emotional ones. They aren't logical ones. Um, and that's because it's really hard to justify increasing a budget that inches closer and closer to a trillion dollars every single year. Um, and they don't have particular deliverables either. Like what are they actually saying? Oh, we should increase the budget so that we can, you know, compete with China. Well compete with China how? Because our own defense secretary has said China is our pacing threat which means that they you know systemically challenge us not just militarily but economically technologically and all of these other domains are those less important domains than military you know hard power because i would argue they're actually more important and sinking our money in a government agency that has consistently failed audits and um you know, in its own words, doesn't necessarily need all of the weapons that we're programming. And I'm alluding to Pentagon wish lists here, which are extra budgetary items that the Pentagon gets every year from Congress to, you know, sort of, um, for again, lack of a better phrase here, but produce weapons for essentially kicks and gigs. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, I struggle to engage with those folks um, just because they are emotional arguments and they don't have much to say. Um, When when you ask them specifically, what are we getting for more money? Like, tell me, what is the deliverable here? Because I'm not seeing I'm not seeing how it makes anyone safer.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure if you asked that question to like the armed forces leaders, they'd give you a fire hose of like all different weapons that they need and would, and that they would be on the the cutting edge of competition with China, if only they had that extra money. But then when you break it down, and you have to spend time breaking it down, and it's best to have people like you or other military experts who actually know the hardware, and they know the uh, history of these systems, um to, to enjoin that debate and break it down. And then it all gets lost in the emotional argument, unfortunately. I know we're running out of time, but I had one quick question, and I because I know this is something you've been working on. How have uh, defense contractors benefited from the war in Ukraine um, that you can see in, over the last year and a half? How are they benefiting from it?
2: Yeah, so I think that, you know, Ukraine has given them greater ability to um, kind of sink into the trends over the past 25 years. And one in particular is this incredible um, increase in, you know, service contracting, for example, Um Service contracting has more than doubled in the past 25 years, reaching, you know, over $200 billion in in fiscal year 2022. Um, We've seen military spending in general become a lot more capital intensive. And by that, I mean, it's a lot more focused on weapons procurement, research and development. Um, As you all know, the Pentagon is a major source of funding for that type of research and development and focus on weapons production, um, you know, not just in private companies, but also research institutions that are federally funded. Um, And in the context of Ukraine, you know, we've seen these contractors dig into those trends and say, okay, um, now we have this, you know, war in Europe, and we really need to ramp up our production capacity in a way that we haven't for a very long time, and in fact, intentionally uh, decrease. Um, at the end of the Cold War. Uh, and they're seeing this as an opportunity to, as um, you know, me and my colleague over at the Quincy Institute, Bill Bill Hartong, have, have written, to permanently expand weapons production capacity. And we were kind of talking about this a few minutes ago. But um, when we get to this point where Congress is authorizing, for example, multi-year contracts and um, sort of allowing companies to dig into uh, their sort of uh service contracting and um uh DOD's reliance on them for these types of services, um, they are able to increase capacity in a way that's going to give them even more power to to hold on to it and say, argue for you know weapons production, a la Taiwan or China. Um and so it's kind of a vicious cycle insofar as they've already really consolidated as an industry, um, built power in terms of influencing Congress. Um, and, uh, you know, put the Pentagon in a spot where they can't actually change anything because they're so reliant on these companies, um, to produce things, to provide services. Um, the companies own a lot of the technological data for some of these weapon systems. Um, and Ukraine is just exacerbating all of those existing issues that cost the taxpayer a lot of money. The Pentagon would save a lot by um, doing more of this work themselves instead of outsourcing it. And the worst part about this is that these companies aren't even often doing it themselves. They're outsourcing like 60 to 70% of the actual legwork to small, smaller contractors. And then the government has no idea like what's going on at that level because of contract privity. So I would just say that, you know, Ukraine has given them this ability to dig into the trends that have already been happening over the long term, um, giving them just an incredible power over Congress and defense policy in such a way that will likely um, expand production capacity in a way that they're going to hold on to for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And their way of doing that is advocating for war, frankly. Yep, yep.
0: Unfortunately, we have to close on that uh, somewhat discouraging note, but uh, wanted to thank you again for coming on the show, uh, Julia Gledhill of the Project on Government Oversight. Uh, thanks for being here.
2: Thank you for having me. Thanks, Julia. I appreciate it, y'all.
1: Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world one episode at a time.